The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure, as always, that we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word, because we know that the Scriptures are the absolute truth. They are the rock of our salvation. They are the mind of Christ. And it is through God's Word that we understand how to properly interpret reality, how to understand the flow of history. And it is in God's Word that gives us comfort and stability in times of crisis, whether personal or national. So we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we always have a few moments of silent prayer before we open in prayer. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this freedom to get, come together and worship you. We thank you for this great nation in which we live. And during this time of national crisis, we pray that you would give our leaders wisdom, that you would keep them strong and healthy, that you would give them uh, objectivity, that they might be wise and discerning in the decisions they make. Father, we pray for those in the armed services that are uh, preparing to fight to defend our freedoms and to take the fight to the enemy. We pray that you would give them courage and fortitude, and we pray that they might be uh, have clear thinking in the midst of combat. Father, we pray for us now as we study your word that you would give us uh, clarity, objectivity as we focus on your word, that we might be might have the courage to see how this uh, this applies to our own lives, that we might be willing to be transformed by your word under the teaching ministry and the filling of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every generation has its test. Some some generations face the test of prosperity. Others, the test of adversity. Some generations pass with flying colors. Others fail miserably. Some generations just pass so-so. Others fail, but not so miserably. What we're facing in our nation today is a crisis that particularly challenges a generation that's in their 20s and because it will fall to them to be willing to volunteer for the armed services. It may be up to them to fight 
Maybe up to them to give the ultimate sacrifice in some foreign land in order to uh, secure and maintain our freedoms for another generation. In Daniel's time, they faced a similar yet different type of crisis. There was a crisis that was brought on because their parents' generation had failed miserably. Their parents' generation had gone through the, uh, the prosperity under King Josiah. And in that prosperity, they had failed to trust God. They had failed to be faithful to the Mosaic Covenant. And as a result of that, God was lowering the boom on the nation. He was finally going to take them out under the fifth cycle of discipline. God had given them grace after grace after grace. It was not something that God just suddenly, out of the blue, hammered them. And we looked at some of those passages Last week in Jeremiah 23 and other passages in Jeremiah where God warned the nation of the coming judgment, but the nation refused to listen. And so God had to finally use the army of Nebuchadnezzar in order to judge that nation. And it was a nation that was filled with wickedness. There were were good people there. There were religious people there because the wickedness of Israel was more than anything else the, the wickedness of idolatry. They had failed to worship God. They were caught up in all kinds of religion. It was all associated with the fertility religions uh, of the cultures around them, just as it occurred in the early days of the judges. Before we get into our section today, I want to give you a hint of what it was like at that time. And the ideas uh, or the thinking of some of the people, some of the believers, the solid believers who lived at that time. These were the contemporaries of Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. I want you to turn as we begin to Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1.1. Now, Habakkuk is in your, towards the end of your Old Testament. It is just a, about four or five books from the end. It is the fifth book from the end, and it is one that is not studied in detail. Perhaps we'll come back at some time and we will study this. But I want to raise the question that Habakkuk raises in verse 2 of chapter 1. First verse reads, The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and thou will not hear? He felt as if God did not answer his prayers. He did not think that God was listening to him, that he continued to pray without an answer. He said, I cry out to thee, violence, yet thou dost not save. And he's talking about the violence that is in the land, the criminality that was taking place in Israel at that time. And because of all of the immorality that was associated with it, he says, I cry out to thee, violence, yet you do not deliver. Why do you make me see iniquity? What he means by that is, why do you make me witness the iniquity and the sins of of the people? And cause me to look on wickedness. Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. He's talking about the fragmentation that's taking place in the nation because of the failure of that generation to pass the prosperity test. He says, therefore, the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. And he says... um, And then God answers him in verse 5, and God says, Look, among the nations observe, be astonished, 
wonder because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Notice, God is raising up a pagan people, the Chaldeans, in order to discipline his own nation. In order to discipline the apostate unbelievers and apostate believers in Israel. He raises up the Chaldeans. Uh, They are described as fierce and impetuous. They are hostile. They are antagonistic. They were brutal in their practices of warfare. They went about seizing places that were not theirs. What the Jews experienced in Jerusalem was nothing, I mean, uh, that which we experienced last week was nothing compared to the horrors of siege warfare that the Jews went through during this time as Jerusalem was surrounded by the Chaldean army under Nebuchadnezzar. And they were starved three times over a period of 20 years. They were besieged by the Chaldean army. They starved during that time. There was tremendous famine, so much so that they were at the end there in 586 B.C., uh, there was no food, and they would eat their own children. That's how desperate it became. It was a time of tremendous horror. And yet God was still involved in that. People today ask the question, how in the world can God be involved in what transpired last week? Because God does indeed use the evil and wicked in the world in order to discipline his people, in order to get their attention And that happens again and again in history. And I have heard on talk radio people question that after some comments that were made by some uh, evangelical leaders. I think they were ill-timed, they were inappropriate, and they focused on the wrong issue. But it got people talking about whether or not God can be involved in bringing about a horrendous act in history like that. And the testimony throughout the scriptures from beginning to end is, yes, he can, over and over again in the Old Testament. We see a sovereign God who directs the affairs of men, who promises that when, when nations and cultures are disobedient to him, especially Israel, then God will discipline them. And that's this background to Daniel and his generation. But you see where his parents' generation failed, for the most part, there were some who did not fail. There were the parents of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were originally named Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, and the parents of Daniel. And so we have come in our study of Daniel to realize that it is because of those parents. It is because of the fact that that they were faithful as parents in drilling the Word of God into their children. They did not have their children for long, remember. They just had them for a few years. By the time they were 14 or 15 years of age, Nebuchadnezzar and his army were outside the gates of Jerusalem, And those children were taken as hostages to Babylon. And they spent the rest of their days in Babylon along with many other Jews that had been uh, taken away and transported and removed to a foreign culture. And so Daniel is a book that tells us several different things. I have emphasized the fact that it is a wisdom book in the Old Testament. There are three divisions in the Old Testament canon. There is the Torah, the law. Torah means instruction. How to live before God. Then there are the prophets. The prophets 
in many cases, are bringing a lawsuit against the nation for God because they have violated the laws. Much of the Bible, it's amazing, is built on a legal framework. You don't understand the court system of the day. You don't understand legal practices. You'll miss a lot of what's going on in the Scriptures. But the prophets, in many cases, are bringing a, 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 a lawsuit against the nation because the nation has failed in their responsibilities in the Mosaic Law. And then we have the wisdom literature. And the wisdom literature teaches how to live, how to apply the, the law in everyday uh, circumstances of life so that we can create a life that is of beauty, something that glorifies God so that the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can have a life that is transformed. And in the Old Testament, of course, they did not know Jesus Christ as he came in the incarnation of Bethlehem. That was yet future, but they had a promise of a Messiah. And salvation was based on belief that God will fulfill, would fulfill his promise of a Messiah. So the parent, the, the generation that grew up under Josiah that had the prosperity failed. And God disciplined the nation. He warned them again and again through the attacks of their enemies. And they refused to listen. They refused to turn back to God and to make Bible doctrine the number one priority in their life. And then, but there were a few. There were a few who were faithful, and they drilled it into their children. And it was through their children that a remarkable chain of events took place. You may think that you live in obscurity in southeastern Connecticut, and that perhaps your children may not have any impact, but you don't know where your children are going to go, and you don't know who they may win to the Lord and who that person may win to the Lord. We never know how these things work out, but, but what happens in Daniel chapter 4 is a remarkable event because one of the greatest rulers of all history, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, one of the wealthiest men of all time, one of the greatest architectural geniuses of all time, a man who led the armies of the Chaldeans against the Assyrians, against the Egyptians, and defeated both of those great empires who consolidated a a phenomenal empire that stretched from Egypt to India. All of the area that we now look at on a map that is so popular when we focus in and everybody looks at at Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran and, and all of that part of the world, what we used to call the ancient Near East, all of that was under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. He was the greatest king, perhaps, of the ancient world. And he finally becomes a believer. He finally turns to the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the God of Israel, the God who would send his son, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, to earth to become a true human so that he was eternal God who took on flesh and became true humanity and went to the cross. And he came to earth for the purpose of dying on the cross as a substitute for our sins so that the sins of all humanity would be poured out upon him And he would pay that penalty so that we could have eternal life. That salvation is a free gift. It's not something we work for. It's not something we earn. It's not something that's the result of religious observance or ritual or going through um, all kinds of uh, different religious activities. It is simply an act of trusting in Jesus Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. Nebuchadnezzar took a long time to get there. But Nebuchadnezzar ultimately was saved because of the witness of these four young men. 
these four teenagers that were taken to Babylon in 605 B.C. who had a faithful and consistent witness throughout their lives until finally God had to, uh, God used that witness and then he took a two-by-four and he hauled back and he just hit Nebuchadnezzar upside of the head as hard as he could to get his attention. And, and Daniel chapter 4 is the story. Nebuchadnezzar's own words. Interesting, there are, there are two books in the Bible that focus on, uh, that, that, are, that are two passages, one short, one long, in the scriptures that are related to Gentiles. The Old Testament is written by, by Jews, except for Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 is written by a Gentile. It's written by Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony of his salvation. It's written as a gospel tract that went out through the whole world, the whole earth, the entire empire. No one was without an excuse after this. It was publicly proclaimed throughout Babylon. There was a greater witness throughout the ancient Near East at that time than probably in America today because of the way they... uh, promoted and proclaimed these imperial decrees. The other interesting thing is that on Sunday morning we'll begin our study of Ruth, and Ruth focuses on two, uh, on, on one Gentile woman, Ruth, and it focuses on primarily on the problem of her mother-in-law, a Bethlehemite woman by the name of Naomi. But we'll get there on Sunday morning. Right now, we're focusing on Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's salvation in Daniel chapter 4. Now, chronologically, we have to recognize when this takes place. It comes near the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, not at the absolute end, because he ruled until um, 563. So this probably occurs sometime around 570. B.C. or 571 B.C. By the time these events are over with, he was pretty close to the end of his life. He perhaps had a year or two to live. So chronologically, we're told by the Septuagint that the events took place, um, the events in Daniel chapter 3, which had to do with the fiery furnace, took place in the 18th year of um, of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which places that approximately 586 B.C. So that means that the events in Daniel 3 took place the year after that in 585 B.C., and then these events would come sometime later, uh, probably in uh, about 572 to 570 B.C. Now, the events of Daniel chapter 3 focused on Nebuchadnezzar having set up this, the, this tremendous gold idol that everybody had to bow down and worship. And what I want you to remember is the character study we saw a couple of weeks ago when we first got into this. That Nebuchadnezzar, after having seen his first dream in Daniel chapter 2 and being told by Daniel that you are the head of gold, it began to go to Nebuchadnezzar's head. He began to be overwhelmed by arrogance. And this is evidenced in Daniel chapter 3. Eighteen years has gone by between Daniel 2 and Daniel 3, and he is just impressed with himself, so much so that he's establishing his own 
uh, religion and his own worship, and this idol, this gold idol, probably represented himself. And what we see is that arrogance, his rejection of God, even though at the end of Daniel chapter 2, he has seemed to recognize God, he recognizes him as a God among gods. He hasn't completely rejected his his, uh, polytheism. And so he is still rejecting God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The consequence of that is in arrogance. He is in idolatry. And so in idolatry, in the vacuum of his soul, more and more religious concepts of his day began to pour in. And so as a result of that, he begins to fragment in his soul. Mental attitude sins always pile upon other mental attitude sins. And we saw his reaction as soon as he is opposed by, by Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. As soon as he's opposed by them, he immediately loses his temper. He just gets incredibly irate with them. And he's going to throw them into the, the uh, fiery furnace and has it heated up uh, seven times greater heat, which is the wrong thing to do because that would just incinerate them rapidly and they would not, um, not suffer, which was really his intention. So he's had many opportunities to hear the gospel. And even at that time, he looks inside the, the furnace and he sees one like the Son of God, who's the second person of the Trinity in there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sees the fourth, who's like the Son of God, the angel of God, and once again he has another witness. God is witnessing to him again and again and again through all of these, through the dreams, through this miracle, and yet he continues to reject the gospel. He had had many other opportunities to... um, to listen to the gospel. He had been exposed to Jeremiah. He's the one who led Jeremiah out of jail in 586 B.C. when he conquered Jerusalem. Jeremiah had been thrown in jail because he taught the truth. And, and uh, Zechariah the king, had, uh, or Zedekiah the king, had put him in jail because he didn't want to hear the truth. He didn't want to hear doctrine. And Nebuchadnezzar led Jeremiah out. And Jeremiah witnessed to Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel was also a captive in the land. Ezekiel had an opportunity to witness to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel had, and uh, these three young men had witnessed to Nebuchadnezzar again and again and again so that, that he had heard the gospel, but he continued to reject it. And so now God is going to take him from this position of incredible prosperity. He's going to take it all away from him in incredible adversity. And so what we, one of the principles that we're going to see here is how God uses suffering, undeserved suffering sometimes, and other times deserved suffering in the life of people in order to bring them to the realization that they need salvation, that they are incomplete on their own, that they, are in, they do not have the resources on their own to solve their problems or to face life. And this is what, he's going, to, what is going to happen with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And when we look at the evil that takes place here, when we look at the suffering, we need to be reminded of three principles related to suffering and evil. The first is that as long as we live in the devil's world, this world will be dominated by evil. This is an important thing for us to remember at this time because there are those who are going to be asking us questions. Why is it that there was such suffering? How could God allow something like last week to take place? Now, many people will ask questions like that out of the misery and the loss that they've experienced. And it's not always a good time to give them a nice theological or philosophical answer at that point because they're not ready. You have to wait. But we have to know what the answers are. 
And the answer is that we live in the devil's world. And people who respond like that are absorbed with their own pain and their own misery. And they are in arrogance at that point. When you think about what happened last week, if you have historical perspective and you think in terms of how many have been lost in tremendous battles, uh, battles that were fought during World War II, battles that were fought during the Civil War. You think about the uh, uh, battles that were fought even during, during the American War for Independence. Think about uh, other calamities in history that have brought about the death of, of uh, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people like the Black Death in the Middle Ages. We live in a world that is dominated by sin, a world that is dominated by evil, and God has allowed that because God has allowed man free will. And because man exercised free will, ultimately because Satan exercised free will as Lucifer in eternity past, he plunged the universe into sin and darkness, Genesis 1-2. And mankind, because Adam exercised uh, negative volition in the garden, he plunged the human race and human history into sin and evil and condemnation and chaos. And that is always the consequence and is a continuous reminder to us whenever we see events like that of last week that men are sinners. And because we live in a fallen world, we can expect events like that. And it's always tough when it strikes home in our own families or among our own friends because we realize how hard that is. But we have answers as believers. See, nobody else has an answer. They always try to throw that up to us and say, well, how can, how can a loving God let something like that happen? And the fact is that if you throw out a loving God that allows bad things to happen for the reason of a higher good, then you're left with no answer at all other than these things just happen. There's no meaning. There's no rhyme or reason. And everything is just basically evil. And chaos and calamity are part of the natural way. And so... Why not just go out and kill ourselves? And that's, of course, the nihilistic answer. Um, And that's no answer at all. So the Christian answer is the only answer. And we will get into the whole doctrine of of, uh, suffering on Sunday morning as we go through our study of Ruth. Now, as we put these chapters together, looking at the flow of the argument of Daniel 2, 3, and 4, we're going to see how God works on a pagan individual and in a pagan culture. Now, remember, I'm using the term pagan in a technical sense for non-biblical thinking. Non-biblical thinking. It is a technical term. It is not a pejorative term. Anyone who is thinking in a non-biblical way is guilty of pagan thinking. And we are all guilty of that at some point in another or another when we operate on human viewpoint thinking. Now, what we see in this chapter is how the Holy Spirit works circumstances together to bring the most powerful man in the world, the the man who is the representative king of the kingdom of man, to salvation. There's an a fortiori argument here, and that is all things being equal, that the Holy Spirit can bring a man like Nebuchadnezzar to salvation. He can bring anyone to salvation. That ultimately evangelism is under the control of God the Holy Spirit, and it is not up to us. So we discover a few important principles related to evangelism. First of all, sometimes it takes years of witnessing before somebody finally responds positively to the gospel. Just because you sit down and you give them the four spiritual laws or or some tract that, that presents the gospel clearly, and they read it and they don't respond 
doesn't mean that they're not going to respond. It doesn't mean that they're permanently negative. Nebuchadnezzar went for years, heard the gospel again and again and again over a period of 20, 30 years before he finally responds to the gospel. Look at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was born Saul of Tarsus. He heard the gospel from Stephen in Acts chapter 8. He rejected. Saul of Tarsus rejected the witness of Stephen and he began to kill uh, Christians because he hated Christians as a Jew. He thought it was a perversion of Judaism and it was his personal agenda to wipe out Christianity before it could get started. And yet, he finally trusted the Lord. So he heard the gospel again and again and again and rejected it. So we never know how long it may take before somebody finally responds. So the first principle, sometimes it takes years of evangelism. We need to be patient. We need to be consistent. Point two, we need to realize that ultimately evangelism is not up to us. Ultimately, evangelism is not up to us. It is under the sovereign executive ministry of God the Holy Spirit. He is the one who is responsible to convict people of the truth and to make it clear to them. And then it's not up to us to have winning arguments because the issue is not intellect. It's not up to us in order to be able to um, answer all of their objections. It is up to us to, cl- to answer them as best we can, but to clearly focus on the gospel. We studied in the Gospel of John that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come to convict the world regarding uh, belief because they have not uh, regarding sin because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son regarding righteousness because they're not righteous and regarding judgment because sin has been judged on the cross that's what the Holy Spirit's convicting the unbeliever of and that needs to be the focus of our evangelism is to make those things clear and we have such a fantastic opportunity now be, to to be a witness for the gospel because there are going to be many in the days to come. Many of our friends, many people who are co-workers, family members, who are deeply disturbed and troubled by the events that are going on, and they're going to want to know answers. Why? How can God let this happen? What's going on? What does the Bible say about prophecy? You may be uh, interested to know that this last week I got a quick, quick, it'll be probably the last email I get from Tommy for a while, but a quick email from Tommy. He got stranded, and uh, Tommy Ice was stranded in Southern California with Tim LaHaye. Last Tuesday, he was out there. They were working on a, uh, some writing projects together. And while they were, they were there along with Ed Heinsohn, um, they were, got a call from um, uh, Warner, Time Warner. And the folks at Time Warner, which is not a Christian publishing house, wanted, a, wanted them to do a book on these current events from a biblical framework, from view of biblical prophecy. And they have 30 days to have the manuscript into Time Warner so they can have it out by Thanksgiving. So they're going to fast-track this. And that's going to be an interesting project. So you might want to remember Tommy in your prayers and, and Tim LaHaye as they write this, that this can be used to get the gospel to many people. But we need to remember that ultimately evangelism is not up to us. The Holy Spirit worked on Nebuchadnezzar in a number of different ways. He used people and he used circumstances. He used people like Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, and he ultimately used circumstances. And third, as a, on, on the basis of that, we need to realize we're part of a team operation. As Paul put it in, in 1 Corinthians, you know, Apollos watered, uh, Peter planted the seed, Apollos watered, and, 
And uh, I brought forth the fruit. So everybody has a different role. And somebody may hear the gospel from 15 different people and each time gets another answer before they're finally answered. So we need to be patient. We don't need to feel like it's a confrontation and we have to hurry up and get this person uh, saved right now. We just have to make sure that the issue is clear. So these are some lessons we learn about evangelism from the flow of these passages. Now, as we get into Daniel 4... We see the crisis of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. Every chapter in Daniel relates to some crisis. Daniel is a book about how to live in the midst of crisis by applying doctrine, that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of uncertainty, there is certainty from God. God is still on the throne. God is still in control of all of the events in human history, no matter how out of control things may appear to us. Things where it seemed out of control in an extreme way for these four young men when they were taken as captives and hostages from their home and transported to Babylon. Things seemed out of control when they were forced to eat and the meat and go through the uh, brainwashing re-education school in chapter 1. Things seemed out of control when the execution squad was coming to arrest them and to execute them in Daniel chapter 2 because none of the wise men could tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was. Things seemed out of control in Daniel chapter 3 when they were forced to bow down before the golden statue and the penalty would be being burned alive in the fiery furnace. Things seemed out of control, and yet God was in control. And now things are really going to seem out of control as the head of state is reduced to uh, being a wild animal and living in the fields. And you can imagine the calamity that that must have brought upon the nation as a whole. And it's a tremendous testimony from history that little is said because the nation did not implode. Probably because Nebuchadnezzar was such a fantastic administrator that the infrastructure in Babylon was under the control of people like Daniel. And uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And even though the king is out in the fields eating grass and uh, doesn't come in at night, and his nails have grown long like eagle's claws, and his hair's down to his knees and matted, and he hasn't had a bath in months, uh, the nation continued to go forward. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. May your peace abound. Now, immediately we're going to recognize that some things have happened to Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to notice the tone of his language here. Verse 2, It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for us. Which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. Immediately we can tell that something dramatic has taken place in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He hasn't ever talked like this before. At this point it's clear that there has been a complete change, and that is that he has become a believer. He has become regenerate, and he is a uh, born-again believer in the Old Testament. Now we know that this took place late in his life. From things inside this passage, for example, down in verse 30 of this chapter, we know that by this time his building operations had finished. Verse 4 indicates that there was peace in his empire. 
There were no border skirmishes. There were no internal conflicts. There are also indications from various uh, various uh, writers in the ancient world that something strange had happened to him. For example, uh, Eusebius quotes the writings of Abdinus, who lived in the sec- or wrote in the second century B.C. And Abdinus tells the following story. He says, afterwards the Chaldeans say, he, that is Nebuchadnezzar, went up to his palace. And the idea is he went up on the roof of his palace. So it's very similar to the situation in this passage. And being possessed by some god or other, and that's how they would describe madness or insanity. He goes up and he's possessed by some god or other, and he utters the following speech. O men of Babylon, I, Nebuchadnezzar, Herefore tell to you the coming calamity, which neither Belus, my ancestor, nor Queen Peltus are able to persuade the fates to avert. There will come a Persian mule. Of course, he's talking about, he knows what Daniel's prophecy is. He is applying this. He says, there will come a Persian mule, aided by the alliance of your deities, and will bring you into slavery. And the joint author of this will be a Mede, in whom the Assyrians glory. A would that before he gave up my citizens, some Charybdis or sea might swallow him up utterly out of sight, or that turning in other directions he might be carried across the desert, where there are neither cities nor foot of man, but where wild beasts of pasture and birds their haunts, that he might wander alone among rocks and ravines, and that before he took such thoughts into his mind, I myself had found a better end. And then after uttering that prediction, he disappeared. And the curse that he had pronounced on, on uh, the Persian came upon himself. There are other indications. They are... Not definite, they are uncertain. For example, Barosus, writing in the 3rd century B.C., says that after beginning the wall of which I have spoken, Nebo, Nebu, he, pronounced, he wrote it Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar fell sick and died after a reign of 43 years. Now, the point is that most people fall sick and die. So the fact, and they're usually it's not mentioned. They usually say they died. Usually it's preceded by some illness. So the fact that he mentioned some illness preceding his death would indicate that that something unusual had perhaps taken place. So Nebuchadnezzar begins, and he announces this. He, he uses the language of a formal, political, governmental decree. This would have gained tremendous weight in the ancient world. This would have been written out. It would have been read aloud on every street corner by, by, the, um, uh, by his... Uh, uh, Men who went forth to announce the, um, who announced all of the um, all the messages, all the decrees of the land. It's an official uh, governmental decree, and it was to go to everybody in the land. The phrase "peoples, nations, and men of every language" uh, clarifies that it was to go to everyone in the land. So these heralds went forth and announced the message. Uh, it would have been written out so that there was no one in the land, no one in the entire empire of, of Babylon that did not hear the gospel from Nebuchadnezzar. Think about that. He had a greater witness than Billy Graham to this nation at his time, all because of the witness of those three young men, four young men, including Daniel, and because of the training that their parents gave them. So, you never know what impact your teaching as a parent is going to have 
in the angelic conflict and on the world around you. It also indicates that the Holy Spirit has lots of different ways to get the gospel out. It's not restricted. You know, in, in America, in evangelicalism, we so often think that, that evangelistic campaigns have to be conducted a certain way. You know, we always think there has to be the stadium crusade and that it always has to follow a certain formula. But that is not how, how it's done. Look how the Holy Spirit evangelized the world in this generation by bringing to salvation the king of the Babylonian Empire. And he did it all through four teenagers. Very efficient operation. Through these four teenagers, he brought about the salvation of one man who proclaimed the gospel then to the entire nation. Problem is that Americans always face evangelism like it's salesmanship. Evangelism is not salesmanship. And yet so often we come up with these campaigns, try to win the whole country to Christ. I remember back in the 70s, it was the I Founded campaign that Campus Crusade came out with. And it's wonderful. Many people did come to Christ, but they, they set the whole thing up as, um, as an advertising campaign. And there were bumper stickers and there were billboards and, and all of that. And, and the, whole goal, the goal was to reach everybody in America with the gospel within two years. And then you have other campaigns that have come along that are built on a on, on like a um, uh, uh, marketing plan that, um, what do they call these, multi-level marketing plans where if you tell two people and they'll tell two people and then they'll tell two people and then if, if we follow that out to the end, then in, in another uh, six or eight months, everybody in the world will hear the gospel. And we've all run into campaigns like that and those are just human efforts. You know, a right thing done in a wrong way is still wrong. And even though God does use that, and we've seen uh, examples of that in the Scriptures where God does override man's disobedience and man's silliness and superficiality, nevertheless, it doesn't justify these kinds of evangelistic campaigns. So we see a situation here that is extremely rare in history where you have the king or leader of an empire who proclaimed the gospel. And it wasn't just, it didn't just happen with, with, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. It happened again in the, in the subsequent empire, in the Persian empire. Cyrus was brought to the Lord and, and we see the impact Daniel had there. And, uh, again, there was a witness to Alexander when Alexander came into the Middle East and the priests of, uh, of the temple in Jerusalem took Alexander, uh, the copies of Daniel and read him the prophecies that Daniel had made about about Greece and how Greece would have a tremendous empire. And uh, Alexander was so impressed that he went to Jerusalem and bowed down to worship not the high priest, but the God whom the high priest represented because he was impressed by the truthfulness and the accuracy of the Scriptures. And I don't think that Alexander became a believer, but he certainly uh, honored Jews in his, in his uh, administration. Now, we read that in verse 3 that Nebuchadnezzar says, um, he's going to, or in verse 2, he's going to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. And the term signs and wonders are repeated again in verse 3. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. These are technical terms for miracles. Signs are something that signify something. They are to point to something. They just don't happen. God does not just randomly 
uh, perform miracles. In fact, miracles are unusual. If you look at the whole warp and woof of Scripture, you will discover that, that miracles are abnormal. They take place in, in, in lump areas. There's a lot of miracles that took place during the time of Moses, again at the time of Elijah and Elisha. There were other miracles. You can't just isolate to those periods, but they revolved around the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Not everybody in the land was involved with a miracle or saw a miracle. The same thing at the time of the deliverance of Moses. During the time that Christ was on the earth, in the early stage of the church, there were many miracles but it wasn't, even then, they weren't normal. They didn't, not everybody saw a miracle. Not everybody experienced a miracle. They were designed to signify who Jesus Christ was as a, as, as a calling card to establish his credentials as a Messiah. So signs and wonders are, are wonderful. But as we studied in our lengthy study of John, we saw that signs and wonders do not always lead people to salvation. But in this case, something miraculous and incredible took place. And I do not use that word lightly. That's one of the odd words that we use so frequently today. Miracle. This is a miracle. That's a miracle. But a miracle is when it is a technical term. It is not a miracle when something, something happens that is extraordinary. There are many extraordinary things that happen that, that aren't usual. That doesn't make it a miracle. What makes it a miracle is when God abrogates or God suspends the normal operation of physical laws. When God suspends the normal operation of physical laws. Now, there may be some interesting circumstances. You may be driving your car and and not even notice the fact that you're running a, a stop sign and go through an intersection and another car is coming the other way and just barely misses you. And we go, phew. Boy, that was a miracle that just happened. It wasn't a miracle. There's no natural law that was suspended. It just, by the way the circumstances worked out, you weren't hit. God, in his providential care, took care of us, but that's not a miracle. That's not in the order of God, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving sight to a man who was born blind. It is not on the order of healing lepers. It is not on the order of, uh, of giving someone... Uh, hearing when they are completely deaf. Those were miracles. It's not on the order of parting the Red Sea or raising someone from the dead. Those are miracles. And when we use the term miracle just to refer to some ordinary, I mean, some extraordinary or unusual circumstance, then we are diluting the term. And, of course, that's one of the ways that Satan always attacks is by uh, destroying vocabulary. So Nebuchadnezzar says it... I'm going to uh, declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God uh, has done for me. And there he uses a term showing that he recognizes the uniqueness of God, the uniqueness of this, uh, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, these are, this, declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. See, it's not about Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom anymore. It is God's kingdom. He recognizes the authority of God. Nebuchadnezzar came face to face with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and realized that there can only be one authority in the universe, and that's God. And it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. 
His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. Let me show you how how uh, Nebuchadnezzar's thinking and vocabulary drastically changed in at this time. See, if you look at uh, these verses, for example, in Daniel 3.14, when Dan- Nebuchadnezzar is reacting to the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow down to the idol, he says, he says uh, uh, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready at the moment, you hear the sound of the orchestra and uh, fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? Notice how his vocabulary changed. See, that's one of the things that happens in the life of a believer. It's when a believer, someone is saved, and as they learn the word, their vocabulary changed. Now, I don't mean it's a vocabulary that is peppered with bless yous and praise God and glory to Jesus and hallelujah. Now, sometimes you'll see that a lot, especially in some denominations. There are people who, who seem to think that you talk with, with religious terminology. That's what that means. But that's not at all what this means. This is, that's a very superficial way. And usually, when somebody talks like that, you can tell that they must be, in my experience anyway, they're an immature believer. They don't know very much because they think that talking in these kind of cliches is somehow indicative of spirituality. And that is not at all what I am talking about. We see that Nebuchadnezzar has a new vocabulary. He has a vocabulary that... Uh, is reminiscent of the praise vocabulary of the Psalms. That tells us that he's been taught something, that he has been listening to Daniel. He was saved, and after he got back from his seven years out in the pasture, he came back and he said, okay, Daniel, you need to give me a crash course in Bible doctrine. And so Daniel begins to teach him, and as he learns doctrine, as he learns theology, and he learns technical vocabulary, he now incorporates it into everyday language. He's no longer surprised or left out in the dark when he hears terms like uh, omniscience of God or omnipresence or immutability or veracity or, or a tr- the Trinity. Terms like redemption, propitiation, justification. He now understands those terms and he's using them, not those precise terms, but he uses technical terms like the signs and wonders, most high God, great are his signs, mighty are his wonders, the kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, dominion from generation to generation. Those phrases are used again and again in the praise psalm. So he picks up the, the verbiage of praise psalms. Now, one thing I want to warn you about, you have to be careful. Just because somebody's vocabulary shifts doesn't mean they necessarily become a believer, and it doesn't mean that they, have, they really understand doctrine. Uh, there are many religious groups that just sort of have a superficial uh, religious vocabulary shift, and that doesn't mean that there's any real change or understanding of doctrine. And so you have to watch out for that. Don't be taken in by superficial Christian verbiage. That doesn't mean they understand the first thing about Scripture. So Nebuchadnezzar uses profound verbiage here. He talks about the fact that that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation at the end of verse 3. That is not the vocabulary of a polytheistic worshiper. Uh, 
It is not the vocabulary of someone who worships many gods. Certainly he has gotten that vocabulary from Daniel, and now he is talking in terms of the precise kingdom of God. He understands who the ultimate ruler in the universe is. So this is a key to understanding that Nebuchadnezzar has truly been saved here, and he recognizes that God is sovereign and unique. Now in verse 4, 3, excuse me, Verse 4 we read, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. This is where he begins his testimony. I want you to watch how he does it. He talks off, starts off talking about how he was at peace. He was at calm. He was in prosperity. Everything was going great. And he was filled with arrogance. That's what he means when he says, I was at ease. This doesn't mean that he had attained inner peace or stability but that life was going well. There were no external traumas. There was no warfare going on in the land. There is no external pressure. Everything was going uh, great for him, and he thought he had done it all on his own. He's managed to convince himself that he has the one who has solved all of his problems. So he's relaxing in his own home, and he's enjoying all of his prosperity, when all of a sudden, out of the blue, something is going to happen which rocks him to the very core of his existence. But still in his arrogance, he fails to, he's going to fail to respond. There's a hint of coming problems here in the phrase, flourishing in my palace. And it is the Aramaic word ra'anan. And ra'anan is usually used to describe trees and to describe the growth of greenery out in the pasture. Uh, luxuriant growth, uh, flourishing growth, and it's a tip-off that something is going to happen. He's, it's also used of a, of, a, of a tree that has reached full growth. He's flourishing like a tree, and that is a little bit of a tip-off of what is going to come, an anticipation of the dream in 11 to 17, which is going to focus on a tree that is cut down. Verse 5 we read, I, I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. Dahal is the Aramaic word there, and these fantasies, as I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Now, notice that it takes place in his mind, in his thinking, when he's asleep. This dream appears to him. He's fully aware of all the details of the dream. And we've studied how God at different times uses dream to communicate revelation to both Gentiles and Jews. Now notice the reaction. He's at peace. He's at ease. Life's going well. He's passing. He's going through the test of prosperity. He's failing it because he's still in arrogance and mental attitude sins. And because of that, God is going to have to get his attention some other way. Sometimes God brings people to salvation while they're in prosperity. And other times he has to lower the boom. That boom may be through national disaster, as it was with the parents of Daniel and Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah. And sometimes it can be through personal disaster and trauma. And this is the result. He responds to this with soil, with soul turmoil. The first word is the Aramaic word dahal, which means fear, to tremble. It means dread, terror, or horror comes upon him. He is frightened to death. It's it's used in conjunction with a second word at the end of the verse, 
where it says, The visions in my mind kept alarming me. It made me fearful and kept alarming me. These are in, in uh, uh, parallelism, in synonymous parallelism. And the second verb is bahal, which means to be terrified, to be horrified, to be scared witless. He is scared to death. There is something that is happening here that has rocked the very core of his soul. And now he is on the verge of fragmenting on the inside because he has never been able to pass the test of prosperity. He's rejected doctrine, which is the only thing that gets us through the hard times. Because he has rejected doctrine again and again and set himself up as the one who can solve all the problems in his life, now when this comes, he is scared to death and he has no answers and no solutions. So he calls for his State Department to come and give him the answers. Now, I want you to notice what happens in verse 6. I say, I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Now, there seems to be a, some interesting things here that Daniel is not among them. And the second thing is this time he doesn't force them to tell him the dream. Now, why is that? Well, I think that one reason he doesn't have them tell him the dream is he, he wants some simple solution. I think that he is, he is still shaking a little bit over what happened the first time. He's afraid maybe this is the, that God of Daniel talking to him again, and, and, um, and that was extremely unsettling the first time, and, and he wants to try, to try to avoid God. See, that's typical of the unbeliever. He wants to avoid God. He wants to avoid God's solution as much as he can. That's going to be the last option that he's going to try. And so he's going to try to solve this any way he can and see if he can solve his own problems without going to Daniel. So they all gather together in verse 7, the magicians, the conjurers, the magicians aren't magicians like we think of as magicians. This is uh, Aramaic word that refers to the astrologers. These were the leaders in the nation. This is his cabinet. They gather together, everybody but Daniel. And none can make the interpretation known to him. And that tells us the principle that man, by man's efforts, cannot solve man's problems. But then in verse 8, we have the solution. But finally, Daniel came in before me. And Daniel... Speaking for the God of the Scriptures, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is going to tell Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of the dream, and we will get there next time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at your word this evening. The fact that we realize that, that you are in control of all the events of history, and even when things look chaotic and out of control, we know that they are under your control. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you that it is in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for all our sins, and therefore we can rest and relax knowing that we are saved. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not by works that we have done, but according to your mercy, you have saved us. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember the things that we have studied, and we might be challenged by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.